This episode of The Witch Wave is brought to you by Kate's Magic Intention-Based Aromatherapy. Kate's Magic makes 100% pure aromatherapeutic-grade essential oils combined with the highest quality ingredients, blended during sacred ritual and charged with the healing power of Reiki and intention. All of Kate's Magic products are hand-blended in small batches with love and mindfulness by a staff comprised of Reiki practitioners who holds the intention of each product throughout the entire production process. Kate's Magic's aromatherapy provokes the senses, conjures wisdom, and calls forth peace, love, and trust to support people on their life path in order to invoke positive changes by uniting the power of intention with the beautiful aromas of Earth's sacred and medicinal plants. Kate's Magic carries anointing oils, which are perfect for setting daily intentions, Aura mists for instant energetic shifts and exotic all-natural perfumes inspired by the ancient Egyptian art of perfuming. Diffuser oils, single-note essential oils, body lotions, and more magical tools for rituals. They are a woman-owned and woman-operated business in historic downtown Tucson, Arizona, and which we listeners can receive 10% off with offer code WITCH. So go on ahead to katesmagic.com. That's K-A-T-E-S-M as in magic, A-G-I-K. And use offer code WITCH for 10% off. This episode of The Witch Wave is brought to you by Vera Meat. Vera Meat creates divinely weird and whimsical jewelry for those with unusual taste. Her pop-a-culture talismans are playful and stylish, like her talk-to-the-witch-hand palmistry ring, vampire-luck golden fang necklace, and her brand-new tarot collection, which allows you now to adorn yourself in meaningful, magical tarot card imagery. Vera Meat also uses healing, supportive stones in her pieces, like garnet, and black sapphire. She's also got apparel and accessories covered in moons, runes, and witchy babes. And Witchwave listeners can use code WITCHWAVE for 60% off orders on verameat.com through January 2022. You heard that right. You get 60. That's 60% off using offer code WITCHWAVE all one word, at verameat.com. That's V-E-R-A-M as in magic, E-A-T dot com. The world is filled with bewitching people, and you might be one too. Welcome to the podcast where art is magic, magic is real, and reality is stranger than dreams. I'm Pam Grossman, and this is The Witch Wave.
and welcome to the Witch Wave. Oh my gods, I am so excited about today's episode because I get to nerd the fuck out about my favorite artist, Remedios Varro, with the expert about her work, curator and writer, Tede Arc. Now, if you haven't heard about Remedios Varro before, you are probably new to me and my work because I talk about her and write about her pretty much every chance I get. My beloved kitty familiar of 13 years was named after her. May she rest in peace, sweet, sweet Remy. And I consider Remedios Varro to be one of my spiritual ancestors. Someone who has been a beloved guide for me on the path of my own unfolding. Discovering Remedios' work as a teenager changed my life. It made me feel that sense of homecoming that happens when we encounter art of any form that feels both familiar and world-expanding at the same time. As I wrote about in the Art Witch chapter of my book, Waking the Witch, the first time I saw Remedios Varro's work was in the book, Women Artists and the Surrealist Movement. Her painting, Nasser de Nuevo, or To Be Reborn, leapt out on the page and affirmed for me in one magical instant that my love of all things occult and lunar and feminine had a place in the art world and in the world at large. Now, in the 1990s, when I encountered this painting in this book, it was a tiny corner of the art world, and it was an even tinier corner in the year 1960 when Remedios painted it. But this image of a woman emerging from a wall and stepping into a moonlit hexagonal chamber about to take a sip from a chalice of moon water whispered to me, you belong here. Here being in this painting, sure, but also in the world, in my life that there was and is a place for me here on earth where my magic and my feminism and my romantic oddball sensibilities were welcome, were understood. And for that, I am infinitely grateful. As I discovered more about Remedios and fell in love with more of her work, my kinship grew stronger. Superficially, she and I come from very different backgrounds. She was a Spanish painter born in 1908, raised Catholic, who ultimately became an artist and spiritual seeker of many stripes. She was witness to the Spanish Civil War and World War II, and lived in several other countries including France and Venezuela. She ultimately landed as a war refugee in Mexico City, where she became part of a bohemian enclave that included such kindred spirits as the occult surrealist artist Leonora Carrington, who became her best friend. 
They studied such subjects as witchcraft, tarot, Kabbalah, alchemy, I Ching, Zen Buddhism, comparative mythology, and the teachings of such mystics as George Gurdjieff and P.D. Uspensky. All of this esoteric knowledge then got metabolized and distilled into their paintings and writings, and Remedios in particular painted a lot of imagery of witchly ladies and shapeshifters and spiritual journey women, not to mention a fair share of owls, cats, and other celestial beings. Her work manages to be precise, but also luminous, and she has an irresistibly rare combination of an unbridled imagination and the technical prowess to render her visions about magic and discovery with exacting beauty. Though she achieved some success in Mexico, she sadly died young in her mid-50s, and then for many decades, she remained relatively unknown— there were a few exhibitions of her work, one of which I got to go see in Chicago when I was in college, but I would tell people about her, and I would be met with confusion. Nobody had heard of Remedios Varro other than people who had this very specific interest in her and her work. She absolutely was not taught in most art history courses. She most certainly was not collected by most major museums, and so on. But happily, in the last few years especially, she has posthumously received the kind of worldwide recognition that she deserved all along, including now having her work as part of the collections of major museums, including the Museum of Modern Art here in New York. Though Remedios died relatively young, the body of paintings, drawings, objects, and writings that she left behind is so rich and so vast, and I am so grateful to have the renowned Varro scholar Tede Arc here with me today to shine more light in Remedios's direction. But before we get to that, First, let's check and see what's come through on The Witch Wire. Who is it? Witches! E writes, I have tried to reconnect with my witch after years of feeling magically lost. As with many lost connections, I feel that having entered the workforce full-time and overall adulting has dulled my once-vibrant intuition. During my undergraduate studies, I was gifted a well-loved tarot deck from a professor I adore. I still turn to this deck when I feel I need grounding. However, the uncertain and ever-changing state of the world and loss of my father has made sticking to a magical routine particularly hard. I felt the spark of my witch ignite last July after being gifted your book from my older sister, whom I consider a literary witch. I took this as a sign to reconcile with a part of myself so easily known in adolescence, yet foreign in my adult life. I did not have a religious upbringing despite growing up in the South, and my parents were always open-minded and supportive to a certain extent. 
So why is it now, after receiving signs, I struggle to identify as a witch? Do you have any witchy advice or wisdom that will help me establish a routine and feel worthy of the title witch? Hi, E. Thank you so much for this note. I'm so pleased my book made its way to you. And also, I'm so sorry for the loss of your father. And I actually think that witchcraft could be a means by which you help process some of that grief. Just a little something to consider. But you asked me a few different questions, though they're all very interrelated. So I feel compelled to start by saying that I think it's wise if you try and decouple the what you're doing from the what you call yourself. So let's start with the what you're doing. Let's begin with the how do you establish a routine? And that's a pretty easy one because many modern witches follow the solar seasons and the lunar phases. Now, you don't have to do this, or you don't have to do both of these things. In other words, some witches don't celebrate the eight pagan holidays, but they do follow the faces of the moon, and other witches do the reverse of that. But if routine is what you're looking for, well, nature has taken care of that for us. You don't need to reinvent the pagan wheel of the year, as it were. But starting a practice where you celebrate the eight pagan seasonal holidays or do some related spell work around each one of them might be just the routine you're looking for. Or, yeah, you might want to start with the phases of the moon. Setting intentions each new moon and doing release work or gratitude work each full moon might be a meaningful practice for you, and it will certainly help you get into your own magical rhythm. But let's say you miss a full moon or, whoops, the holiday Beltane came and went and you didn't manage to celebrate it. That's okay. It doesn't mean you have failed as a person or a witch. Just do what you can when you can. But I'm going to let you in on a little secret. There are some witches who don't practice magic on a set schedule at all. They just do the spells they feel called to do on an as-needed basis. And guess what? That's still witchcraft. They are still witches. Additionally, their magic might take a different form than mine does or yours does. You were about to hear an entire episode about an art witch, and she definitely did magic in her own unique way. So just experiment, try stuff, and see what feels effective and nourishing and inspiring for you. Maybe you want to reconnect with that tarot deck. Maybe you want to try something totally new. Just go deeper in whatever direction you feel called to go, whatever direction makes you feel most alive. Okay, so now when do you get to call yourself a witch? I bet you can guess what I'm going to say. You will just know. There is no set determined time or moment. It's different for everybody. You'll have a feeling or get a sign or just one day you'll try saying it about yourself in a moment of bravery and it will just feel right. Or it won't. 
And remember, you never have to call yourself a witch, or you can call it to yourself privately, or you can know that you are one, but never tell anyone, or you can just tell some people some of the time. You get the idea. And look, I know these fuzzy answers can feel like a dodge, but I am telling you, there's a reason that witchcraft is sometimes called the crooked path. It's not because we're crooked people. Hopefully not anyway. It's because no one's journey into it is the same, and it is never a straight line. Witchcraft is decentralized, which means there's no one organizing body or book or person or certificate you get when you become a witch. There are certainly different initiations you can seek out if you're looking for a more regimented style. But remember, a lot of those initiatory styles of witchcraft, such as Gardnerian Wicca, for example, were modeling themselves after Freemasonry and the Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn and other such ceremonial societies. And that's great, but it's not the only way, and it is certainly relatively young. And many people throughout time whom we would consider witches now were just learning from their relatives or communities or teachers or their own individual studies, not through some formalized training program or initiation. And you know what else? Most of them probably would never have wanted to be called witches in the first place. It's only within the last 75 years or so that the word witch has taken on this more positive connotation. So I wouldn't get too hung up on the word, and I would just claim it for yourself if and when you feel the time is right. And if that never happens, that's okay too. Remember, magic is in the making. So go on and make some. Now, on to my guest. Tede Arc is arguably the world's leading expert on the life and work of artist Remedios Varro, as well as being a specialist in women surrealist artists overall. Tede was chief curator of the Museum of Modern Art in Mexico and director of an international art investment fund. As an independent curator, she has created and produced exhibitions in Mexico and abroad, including The Adventures of Women Surrealists in Mexico and the United States, an international project presented at the Los Angeles County Museum of Art, the National Museum of Fine Arts in Quebec, and the Modern Art Museum in Mexico. She has also contributed to countless exhibitions, most recently as a contributing curator of the Mexico City Room in the astounding Surrealism Beyond Border show that is up now at the Metropolitan Museum of Art. Do not miss this show. Seriously, it's up until January 20th of 2022. Go, 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 go. It is so marvelous. Tede also wrote for the monograph, the five keys to the secret world of Remedios Varro, and she has contributed to many publications on Remedios and Leonora Carrington and women surrealist artists overall. Witch Wave Patreon backers may recognize Teddy's voice from a bonus episode a few months back where she and Leonora Carrington scholar Susan Aberth spoke about their gorgeous book and reproduced deck, The Tarot of Leonora Carrington. 
Tede has also collaborated in the production of documentaries and short films on artists, and she has designed and organized specialized art tours for collectors. As you can imagine, Tede is a frequent lecturer at museums, institutions, and universities worldwide, and I am so lucky I got to speak with her and swoon with her about this brilliant, bewitching artist we both adore. Tede joined me from her home in Mexico City via Zoom. Tede Ark, welcome to the Witch Wave. Thank you, Pam. I am very happy to be here. I have been looking forward to this conversation with you for so long, I can't even tell you. Listeners know that I'm obsessed with your area of expertise, which is the work of the surrealist painter, Remedio Zavaro. So it is such an honor to have you here, Tede. Thank you again. Thank you for inviting me. It's a pleasure. So Tede, I am in a a state of ecstasy right now because yesterday I took myself to the Metropolitan Museum of Art and I got to see the incredible show that's up right now, which is called Surrealism Beyond Borders. And I know that you were involved in that show. So by way of introduction, can you tell our listeners what the show is and how you were involved with it? Yes, absolutely. Well, this is an exhibition, well, it was in the making for, I think, almost six years. Uh, the project originated with two curators, with Stephanie D'Alessandro, who works at the Met, and Matthew at the Tate. And they invited many people from different countries, different expertise to seminars and discussions Because the main idea of the show from the very beginning was to explore how surrealism was perceived and received and transformed in many different places once it left basically Paris, you know, and there's a lot of information around about what happened in the U.S., a lot more about Mexico as well. But there were many countries where surrealism arrived in different ways, like Egypt, for instance, or Libya or, you know, Korea that were completely unknown. So there was a huge amount of research. They put together a team of 40 different people from, uh, with expertise in all these areas. And I was invited to collaborate, in, of course, around Mexico. And we were discussing different uh, areas of the surrealism in Mexico at the beginning. And at some point, uh, because of the prominence now of women artists in every museum in the world and in the art scene, they asked me if I could help them to curate the room of Mexican art, but focusing on women collaboration. Yes. So basically, that was what I did for them. I wrote for the catalog. We were 40 writers on all different subjects, but I focused on the women collaboration in Mexico. Spectacular. And you did such a beautiful job. I can only imagine, though, that that remit 
must be challenging because it's one room in an exhibition of many rooms. So how did you go about deciding which pieces and which artists you wanted to make sure were represented in this monumental show? Well, first, I have to say that the list was larger at the beginning. This project was going to happen when COVID hit the world. So because of that, because of costs and all the problems related to the pandemic, the exhibition had to be reduced Mm. in size. So we had to take out some of the works, but basically the selection began in a team working with Stephanie and her people, mostly in New York at the Met. And the main idea was to choose the works from these women, uh, not only the exiled in Mexico, such as Remedios Varo and Alice Raon, Katy Horna, uh, Leonora Carrington, but also some of the Mexican artists that were involved in surrealism, such as Maria Izquierdo. But the main idea was to have works that will refer to exile, collaboration, how it was perceived in Mexico. Mm. So that's the reason, for instance, in the case of Remedios Varo, I really wanted to put that triptych together for ages. You know, that piece. Oh, let's talk about it, because this is this is history that you helped make. Oh, it's uh, mind blowing to see the works together. They were painted at the end of her life, mostly. They were exhibited together in 1962 in her gallery, but they were sold separately. Teddy, let's tell everyone what we're even talking about. So this is a triptych. It's three separate paintings that she painted that tell a bit of a narrative or a bit of a story. And so what you're saying is that this triptych was exhibited once in the 60s, and then it was broken up into pieces and went to all different directions. And so you had the task of reuniting these three pieces together and displaying them at the Met for the first time in decades. Well, I've tried to do that before when I did the retrospective for her centennial exhibition here in Mexico City, but there was always one of the owners that wouldn't lend the piece. Hmm. The last part of the triptych belongs to the Modern Art Museum, so that's an easy one. Mm -hmm. But then they have been changing hands throughout time. And finally, we were able to convince, and it was the main reason is was because they couldn't say no to the Met. Yeah, you know, thinking about having their paintings in such a, a great institution. So finally, we were able to convince everyone to lend and put it together. So yes, since 1962, nobody has seen it together. And as you say, it is a narrative, and also the idea to bring this piece to the Met. It was not only for reuniting it, and because it's the biggest work she's ever done. The scale is incredible. Mm. A lot of her paintings are smaller in scale, but this painting also, I believe, has a deeper history. You know, you have the first panel where you see this group of girls dressed as in a convent school with blue uniforms that are riding bicycles guided by this master. Then you have that's called Towards the Tower, Mm -hmm. the first painting. Mm -hmm. Then you have the central panel, which is called Embroidering the Earth Mantle. Mm -hmm. And there you see the girls inside the tower and they are embroidering. And there's uh, this master playing the flute and there's alchemical instruments in there. I forgot to say in the first panel, 
all the girls are following the master and there's one of them that is looking right at us. Yes. And this same one is embroidering a couple escaping, you know, on the on the earth mantle. Mm-hmm. And then you have the last part, which is the flight. And there's this couple in a ship that is flying in this golden sky towards a cave. Mm-hmm. And they are both controlling the ship and their clothes are sort of blending. So there's been interpretations about this painting that it's a, a reminiscence of her years in a Catholic school. Mm-hmm. And then that she was escaping with this boyfriend that she had and she got married. Gerardo Lizarraga, to go to Paris. And the reason why people say this is because he was the model for the painting. Oh, I see. But at the time, you know, they they had been separated for a long time. They were just friends. And I think that's a quite simplistic Mm -hmm. explanation. But she was best friends with Leonora Carrington. Mm -hmm. And Leonora Carrington wrote, this fantastic novel that it's called The Hearing Trumpet. It's the best. It's incredible. And in this novel, the main characters are two old ladies, a British and a Spanish one. It's semi-autobiographical in terms that the characters are Leonora and Remedios, but they're in their 90s, you know, they're old ladies. And all this story is a fantastical story that has to do with the goddesses and with This British woman going into a house taken there by her family. An old folks home. They're basically exiling her to this institution and she doesn't want to go. Exactly. She doesn't want to go. And her friend Carmela, which is Remedios, this uh, Spaniard woman with red hair, that Remedios was a redhead. Many people don't know that because most of the photos are in black and white. Mm -hmm. But her late partner described that her hair was, you know, as fire. So she's going to try to rescue her. But the main thing of the whole story is that she's also referring to the Gurdjieff teachings and all the people in the Gurdjieff groups that were in Mexico at the time that she was friends with or that she disliked. So this master refers to him specifically. Mm. And everything happens also in a tower. In a tower is the transformation. And the end of the novel, there's a new era where, you know, gender is again in balance. So there's a complete shift in the earth. So I believe that Remedios was in a way uh, returning this homage, this collaboration, you know, that uh, Leonora did in the hearing trumpet. So for me, this painting, it's in a way a response to the hearing trumpet. And she wrote in letters to her brother, little fragments about what the painting was, but she made keys to try to understand. Like, for example, she makes a relationship to the beehive. Mm. And and in the hearing trumpet, of course, there's a beehive inside the tower and the bee refers to the goddess and there's a cauldron. And so everything is happening there, the, all the transformation. So my, my thesis is that this painting is a response to Carrington's work. So that fit perfectly in the idea of collaboration. Oh. I am just swooning that when you put it in that context, it makes such sense. And it's also beautiful to see that work 
in the same room with a piece by Leonora Carrington and all these other amazing women who were creating art in Mexico City. It, of course, was my favorite room, but I'm very, very biased. So congratulations. (laughs) It's so, so beautiful. And I cannot recommend the show more highly. And especially that room is just absolutely transcendent. So, Tede, you brought up Gurdjieff. And I know a bit about Gurdjieff and Uspensky, but it was only through reading your book and a lot of your other writing. This is a book that you put out with some other writers called Five Keys to the Secret World of Remedios Varo. And in this book, you really emphasize how much not only the study of tarot and Kabbalah and all of that was to Remedios, but specifically it was the work of these mystics, Gurdjieff and Uspensky. And I imagine that some listeners might not know too much about those two gentlemen. So without going into too much detail, because I know we could probably spend eight hours on them alone, can you sum up a little bit who these gentlemen were and what some of their theories of mysticism were that influenced Remedios? Yes, absolutely. Well, Gurdjieff was Armenian and Uspensky was Russian. And what happened was about the same time, towards the end of the 19th century and the beginning of the 20th, independently, without knowing each other, they set on a journey throughout the world and to study ancient knowledge from the Tibetans, from the Egyptians, from the Sufis. So they were both trying to find all this secret knowledge that was preserved in the esoteric side of religions and uh, all these mystics throughout the whole world to try to put together a system whose focus was the development of consciousness. Mm. So then they met in Russia and they realized they had lots of things in common. They started working together together. At some point, they separated because Gurdjieff, he created a school, first in Paris, and then he went to Fontainebleau to create this Institute for the Harmonious Development of Men. And that's a parody that Leonora makes with this institute in the hearing trumpet. (laughs) And basically, he was doing a lot of exercises to try for people to evolve you know, and develop a higher consciousness. Mm-hmm. And he began with the principle that we are all behaving like machines in an automatic way, mm-hmm. because we are born with an essence that after we, as a child, you know, we're free, we have all this very true essence that we come into the world with. But then all the institutions, the family, the church, society, school, whatever, uh, start creating different layers of personalities that cover that essence. So basically the the work, as he called it, was uh, exercises to try to get rid of all those layers and go back to the essence and to achieve the greatest potentiality of men. So he will talk about different, you know, phases in development, men number one, two, three, four. He created this school that Uspensky was able to really explain clearly because Gurdjieff is quite uh, obscure. Yeah. He writes with riddles and metaphors and it's so difficult to understand. But Uspensky, in a book that it's called In Search of the Miraculous, 
he put all the teachings together in a very simple way. Mm-hmm. So he describes Gurdjieff created what was called the fourth way. So what that basically means is he believes there's three types of men. And with men, he refers to humanity, Mm -hmm. either male or female. Mm -hmm. So number one is basically somebody that is acting from the physical body only. Number two, only through the emotions. And then number three, using only the mind. And then the fourth way is a combination and a balance among the three for a complete human being. Yeah, it's so much about integration. It really strikes me in reading about their work, both independently, but also through your writing about them, that this real key that unlocks a lot of their theories is about harmony. It's about harmonizing all of these different elements of being, whether it's in your body microcosmically or harmonizing the macrocosmos and and, and all of that. Um, and so I found it so helpful, you know, in your book, you call these different principles keys to unlocking Remedios's work. And their work is such a big key to unlocking a lot of her paintings because she's often painting about things like alchemy and harmony and architecture. And, and so she's visually representing a lot of these esoteric ideas, albeit through this very fantastical feminine lens. Absolutely. And if you look at her paintings, it's very rare where you see more than one figure. Mm. And most of the paintings are metaphorical self-portraits. And she represents herself as a seeker. So everything she's studying, she tries to represent there. And it's herself immersed in trying to understand the universe, Mm. you know, throughout all these studies that she was doing but she was deeply involved in the teachings what happened very interesting in Mexico is one of Gurdjieff's and Uspensky's disciples Christopher Fremantle was a painter so when he arrived in Mexico in 1951 to take care of the groups here and the teachings he created a workshop for artists where he was applying all the principles of Gurdjieff towards a higher consciousness through painting. And Remedios was part of these workshops, and that was deeply influential in her work. Splendid, splendid. On that note, we're going to take a quick break, and we'll be right back. 2,000 years ago, in labyrinthine underground temples across the Roman Empire, the first beeswax candles were burned in secret rituals to the god Mithras. Now you can experience some of this mystery for yourself with Mithras candles, my favorite. Handmade from the purest East Coast golden cappings beeswax with that natural, subtle honey and floral scent, Mithras candles are the perfect illumination for the mysteries of your life. Mithras candles come in natural gold and rich black varieties. You can also get them in their signature stunning hand-dripped style, or you can choose their smooth and rustic version. 
They also have wide pillars for sale if you're feeling extra expansive with your magic. And very exciting, they now have new long sleeve black t-shirts for sale. And I am so excited to get mine because I love a long sleeve shirt and this one is gorgeous. So go on ahead to MithrasCandle.com, that's M as in magic, I-T-H-R-A-S, Candle.com, and use offer code WITCH for 13% off your first order. That's MithrasCandle.com, and offer code WITCH gets you 13% off your first order. Thank you, Mithras. I'm a big fan of therapy and have seen firsthand how much talking to a professional has helped me manage my own anxiety and stress and trauma so that I can live the fullest life I possibly can. I've also seen how it's changed the lives of so many people that I care about for the better as well. And that's why I am encouraging you to check out BetterHelp which is an online counseling service that can provide you with your own licensed professional counselor to talk to via video or phone sessions. And it doesn't have to be that heavy of a topic. Maybe you just need a place to be heard and have an outside perspective on your everyday struggles with your job or your relationships. We all have so much that we're carrying with us these days between our personal issues and, need I say, global issues, and it's just a lot. And I'm telling you, talking it all through with someone who is trained and objective and not a friend or family member is such a gift because their job Their actual job is to listen to you and help you work through your feelings about it all. So please consider reaching out to the folks at BetterHelp, and they'll connect you with a counselor who you can start chatting with in under 24 hours. And they've been doing remote sessions since before it became the norm, so they've built a platform that's accessible, convenient, and secure. Also know that BetterHelp offers financial aid to those who qualify, and they make it really easy to switch counselors so you can find one that you truly click with. Best of all, Witchwave listeners get 10% off your first month of counseling by going to betterhelp.com slash witchwave. That's betterhelp.com slash witchwave. Please take care of your mental well-being. It is so necessary, and there is absolutely support out there for you. Do what over a million people have done already, and head on over to betterhelp.com witchwave, find a great counselor to talk to, and know that I am here rooting for you. Feel well, and take good care with BetterHelp. Welcome back to The Witch Wave. Today, I'm speaking with Tede Ark. So today we're talking about Uspensky and Gurdjieff and the esoteric teachings that inspired Remedios Varro's incredible magical paintings. I want to focus us a little bit, selfishly, I admit, on witchcraft. When I was researching my book, I discovered that Remedios Varro and Leonora Carrington and Kati Horna 
were sometimes referred to as Las Tres Brujas, or the Three Witches. And I know that Remedios was very interested in witchcraft. I would love to hear you expound upon whether or not you thought Remedios considered herself a bruja or a witch. Well, actually, she did. It's not that I thought of. It's been confirmed by people that knew her. Yes. She even had a witch's name for herself. And she will say that she was a witch, uh, same as Leonora. Do you know the name or is it a secret? It's uh, difficult to pronounce. It's like Ugur Kurkugur. Oh, you know, I remember reading that this word, Gunar Kurkarkar, that you write about in one of the yes. other books. Yes, yes, yes. yes I didn't... I'm sorry about the, the pronunciation. No, of course. I didn't yes. realize that was a name she had for herself. I just thought that was a magic incantation. Well, that was her godson, the son of her first husband with his second wife, who was so close to her. He started painting and he was the only person that was allowed in her studio. She sort of adopted him and he told me all these, you know, magical stories about her. And she did believe so. The three of them, they went together to the witches market very often and they will cast spells and exchange them. There's, for instance, some drawings with spells that Leonora did for Remedios. And I truly believe that she will cast spells on some of the works before she was doing them. I know for a fact, and we see that in some photographs, she wouldn't paint with her her crystals. Mm. So she will always charge the crystals and her brushes and the paints on the new moon Mm. all together in the terrace and then she will place the crystals on top of the easel before painting to get the vibration of them inside the work. You're gonna make me cry today. I remember seeing these crystals. I had the wonderful privilege of going to a show in Mexico City at the Museo de Arte Moderno called Addicted to Remedios Varo, A New Legacy. And this show, for listeners who aren't familiar with it, it was a retrospective, but it also had some of her sketches that had never been shown in public before. It had her books, her crystals and magical objects, costumes. I mean, it was incredible. Lots of photographs of cats, as I recall. Mm -hmm. It was so marvelous. And do you have a sense of how she got into crystals, like where that even started for her? Well, I think that was from her childhood because her father had a collection of rocks and stones. He was very interested in geology. Mm. So I believe that was uh, something she really was into since she was very, very young. Wonderful. And I also discovered that she wrote a letter to Gerald Gardner, the father or forefather of what's now called Wicca. And you can read the whole letter in a lovely book that came out recently called Remedios Varo, Letters, Dreams, and Other Writings, which was translated to English by Margaret Carson. And in the letter, she's essentially writing to Gerald Gardner saying like, hey, me and my friend Leonora and our friends, we're starting to do magic a little bit and I'm rearranging my furniture and my crystals and, you know, do you think this works? And it's kind of a fan letter in a way, would you say? Well, yes. You know, for a long time, this book that you just mentioned that was translated into English was published 
in the nineties, I believe, in Spanish. And originally, Isabel Castells, who was the editor, she thought that it was, you know, Remedios had this habit of writing letters to random people that she will take their names out of the phone book. So uh, <laughs> she thought it was just a joke letter to somebody maybe making fun as if it was a gardener or something. <laughs> when I saw that letter and I started reading, I said, no, this doesn't make sense because she's referring to a book. She's saying, my friend, Mrs. Carrington, has just read your book to me because I do not speak English. And so I start looking at Gardner and I say, okay, his letter, his book came out in the early 50s and yeah. it was in English and Remedios didn't speak any English. So she must be referring to that. So I start digging in and then I find in one of her notebooks that she had the address of the Witchcraft Museum on the Isle of Man. So I contacted them to try to find out whether, you know, if, if they had an archive, if that letter ever was received or what happened. But they told me that, unfortunately, a lot of the archives were born. And, oh, I see. You know, when that museum changed hands and all of that, and many of the private papers of Gardner disappeared. So nobody mm. knew about it. So I did get a response, but they told me he received thousands of letters. You know, I'm lots sure. of people wrote to him. So how is it that we've seen the letter then? What, do you think this was like? Well, a, no, it's it's not the letter. It's the address. Uh, yes. In her notebook of the letter. I assume it was sent because the address was there. So oh, I hope so. But even if not, it's <laughs> it's such a delight of a letter. If we have more time, maybe we'll read a little bit of it on an extra podcast episode at some point. It's wonderful. And regardless, you can absolutely read about it in Letters, Dreams and other writings, the whole letter in its entirety. So getting back to magic and her friendship with Leonora and with Kati, do you have a sense of how often they were getting together and what kind of other things they were reading and experimenting with magically? Well, they got together almost every day. They were practically neighbors. Remedios never had any children, but they were like this family. So they will take care of each other's children. And sometimes the husbands were the ones that were taking the kids to school because they were working or they were out discussing something. They were always exchanging books, talking about their dreams, about any ideas. And her library and Leonora's as well is full of books on all different subjects from Kabbalah, Tarot, mysticism, but also they were very interested, for example, in Gothic novels and yes. science fiction. So, but they were very much into magical practices in terms that for them, it was not only a representation or an interest that they were reading about, they truly believed that it was, you know, real. So there's no difference, you know, it was not an intellectual interest itself. So they will experiment in the kitchen with alchemy. And Leonora, for instance, she will try with tempera to paint with egg because it had to do with alchemy. So sure. they were using all of that in their artistic practice as well. And uh. they will make 
talismans and, you know, little Katy Horna, for instance, she's known as a photographer, but she was also making these magic dolls, mm. the same as, as Leonora. I haven't found anything uh, made from by Remedios, but they were, you know, playing around with magic also. And it's in the letters, in some of the dreams that are also reproduced in the book you showed. Mm. So, so gorgeous. There are quite a few paintings of Remedios's that strike me as distinctly having to do with witchcraft or the divine feminine. I mean, two of my absolute favorites which come to mind. The first is Witch Going to the Sabbath, which she painted in 1957. And then my favorite painting, which I've loved since I was a teenager, which is called To Be Reborn of 1960. Maybe you could describe those paintings for the listeners. I know it's hard to talk about art over a podcast, but I'd love for you to give it a try. Well, the first one, the witch going to the Sabbath, I think it's a self-portrait mm-hmm. because it's this red-headed woman, except her hair is so long that it goes, you know, all the way down to her feet. And she's sort of floating in this and she's holding this magical elixir and there's a a kind of bird coming out. I think she was trying to express this idea of a witch being able to transform into a familiar or an animal. So Mm. I believe that's what this painting is about. Shape-shifting. Yes, exactly. And to be born again, you see this woman with a, her torso, naked torso, that is emerging from a wall. And she's looking at this big, uh, what do you say? It's like a gray, like a chalice, chalice yeah. Yeah. where the moon is reflecting. So it, it's a new moon that reflecting there. And I believe this painting in particular has a lot to do with her discussions with Carrington about the white goddess. You know, mm-hmm. that, that book by Robert Graves was yes. for Carrington was fundamental. She said that book was the biggest revelation of her life. Mm-hmm. And of course, she will read it to Remedios and they will discuss it. And they both share this idea of the divine feminine and recovering the power of the goddess and this, you know, matriarchal culture. So I think that this is what this painting is about. I love that so much. And another theme that comes up so much in Remedios's work seems to me to be about the artist as a magician. There are so many instances where the artist is a protagonist in her painting and presumably semi-autobiographical or very autobiographical as the case may be, where someone is embroidering or they're playing music or they're literally painting And then the thing that they're creating comes to life or it becomes an entire world as in embroidering the earth's mantle, which you were discussing earlier. Of course, I'm thinking of perhaps her most famous painting or one of them, Creation of the Birds, also done in 1957. Can you talk about that one for a moment? Yes. Well, that painting is so incredible because it's a self-portrait as a woman owl. And of course, that relates not only to wisdom, but that relates to the goddess Athena, of course. Athena, sure. Athena. So she's sitting on this table, on this desk, and she has her 
paints and she is trying to create, but what happens is she has a violin in her chest that it's sort of inside her body as in the place of, of the heart. Mm. And there's alchemical apparatus next to the windows and you see from one window some of the light coming in and it's transformed in the um, magnifying glass no before the magnifying glass it goes to this alchemical vessel an alembic yes 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 forgive me yes and then so this energy from the sky from the stars it's transformed into painting so then it comes out of the brushes but then on the other window, you have the light coming in through a magnifying glass. The bears that she's painting, they come to life. So uh, it's all magical and alchemical. And this is so related also to Gurdjieff is with vibrations. So it's the vibration of her heart in the shape of a musical instrument, because he, he says always that the universe is made of vibration. And so the vibration is the reason for everything was created. So, oh my goodness. So she is mixing all these different teachings to put it together. And it's the vibration of the heart that makes the birds come alive. Oh my goodness. You're making my heart vibrate so much right now, today. Mm-hmm. That's so, so beautiful. On that note, we're going to take another quick break and we'll be right back. This episode of The Witch Wave is brought to you by The Path 365. The Path 365 Daily Direction for Ladies and Mothers, Witches and Others is a book that allows you to open your mind, body, and spirit to a path that is uniquely yours. As a gateway spirituality guide, it weaves coping mechanisms identified in neuroscience and mental health that address mind, body, and spirit and incorporates them into an easy-to-read daily guide. It gently encourages people to open their mind to a spiritual path of their own. Like a daily oracle read for the soul, The Path 365 takes you through a journey of positive self-discovery and encourages you to incorporate your practice into every aspect of your being. Author Susie Newell received her doctorate from the University of Cincinnati focusing on coping mechanisms for women with substance use disorder. She took these coping mechanisms a step further, offering them to everyone, whether you have a diagnosis or not. So whether you have a solid spiritual practice or are exploring your options, The Path 365 is a unique guide to creating a path of your own. Visit The Path 365 for more details, evidence, and ordering options. Would you like even more Witch Wave? Then come join us on Patreon, where you'll get bi-weekly bonus Witch Wave Plus episodes, ad-free Witch Wave episodes, and detailed show notes for all. Rewards also include magical merch and giveaways, early heads up about my workshops before they sell out, and all backers get access to our exclusive digital coven, where I lead monthly rituals and video chats, and where you can connect to a community of other wonderful witches. So head on over to patreon.com witchwave and sign up. It's a fabulous way to get more magic in your life and to support the show. Thanks so much.
Welcome back to The Witch Wave. Today I'm speaking with Tede Ark. So Tede, it was such a gift getting to know Remedios a little bit more through that exhibition that I got to see in Mexico City a few years ago, and certainly through all of your wonderful scholarship and writing about her. But I haven't gotten a sense of her personality. Do you have a sense of what she was actually like to be around and energetically? Well, I've interviewed many people and I spent hours and hours with Walter Gruen, who was the partner, her partner for the last 12 years of her life and her godson and friends of her. And they all coincide in how they describe her. She was very alive and mm. sparkly at sometimes, but then she will be a little bit melancholic and then she will, you know, hide into her studio for eight hours in a row. She was really beautiful. She was so beautiful. One Mexican artist, Gunter Gerso, that was a friend of her and Leonora, he writes that when they came into a, a party or a cocktail party or whatever, all the guys were just you know, mind blown by their beauty <laughs> and their intelligence. And they, of course, because she was a very independent woman, which in Mexico was quite shocking. She mm. was extremely generous. And, you know, once she had this boyfriend that was a pilot, actually, he was in the Second World War with uh, San Exupery, the writer of The Little Prince. Oh, yeah. And in Mexico, he was flying these planes that fertilize, you know, and he was into an accident and he almost died. He was, you know, in pieces and Remedios had her first exhibition and sold everything and she used the money to pay for all the hospital bills. And, mm. you know, she was always doing that. Whenever she had money, it was to give to others and help other people. So she was always helping and concerned about them. Leonora told me, I had the, the fortune to really meet Leonora in person several times. And she told me she was the most intelligent person she had ever met. And coming from mm -hmm. Leonora and Carrington, that's, you know, pretty big. So everybody really liked her. And she had this capacity to keep a friendship with every ex-husband, ex-lover, like she could have them all around <laughs> and, and everything was fine. But she did have a tendency to melancholy at some point as well. Mm. And she loved cats and cats oh, yes, show absolutely. up in her paintings all the time. I know she had some pet cats. Do you know where that came from? Well, not really, but all of these women, you know, all of them <laughs> without exception had cats. Kathy, I mean, they're witches, so obviously. Obviously, yes. <laughs> and I think she writes about this in one of the letters, is that she believes that cats have, really have psychic powers, mm. you know, that they have a superior intelligence compared to other animals. Well, I know cats certainly think they have a superior intelligence. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. Do you think she saw herself as a feminist or had any kind of political points of view? Because I know Leonora got quite political as she got older. What about Remedios? Well, she was much more reserved and quiet. And mm. she was feminist, of course. But in a quiet way, she was more, I believe, to visualize an equality, but not in terms only of, you know, rights 
I think what she was trying to find was the perfect harmony of genders. Mm. That's what she was really trying to. So it was not a very political statement. You know, it was not an aggressive statement. Of course, she died before, you know, all the feminist movements began. So I don't know if she would have been involved with Leonora in the 70s in Mujeres Conciencia, which was mm. the, the feminist movement she was in. But certainly she was very, very quiet. She didn't like to talk to reporters. She didn't like to give interviews. So it was in a very quiet way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's interesting, though. She was such a badass. I mean, when she first gets to Mexico City, I know she was doing lots of commercial illustration and doing all kinds of odd jobs and what have you. But eventually in her own lifetime, which was sadly cut much too short, but she became quite successful. She saw some success, correct? Well, actually, her first solo show sold completely within two days. Ah. Amazing. Amazing. And from then on, she had a wait list. As soon as the paintings were finished, they already have the owner. Oh, incredible. And then her last painting is this beautiful and quite unusual painting in that there are no people in it. It's called Still Life Reviving. Mm -hmm. And it's quite amazing when one thinks about this as her last painting as well. Can you share a little bit about that? Yes, absolutely. Well, you have this table and the mantelpiece, the cover is sort of revolving around the tablecloth, the tablecloth. And then you have a lit candle at the center. And then you have oranges and pomegranates fruit flying around as if it's a solar system around Mm. the candle and everything is happening inside some sort of hexagonal tower or building and i really believe that she knew she was going to die when she did that painting Mm. because a few months before her death she asked walter her partner to sign a contract with her that if she was no longer here he will take care of her legacy and then Mm. she started giving away all her magical objects, like her tarot cards she gave to her godson, her crystals she gave to another friend. So you don't get rid of that just like that if something that you currently use for your work. So my feeling is that she had this sensation that she was going to go into the light. And that's Mm. the meaning of that painting. There is nobody there because it's her spirit going up to the universe. It's so gorgeous. She painted this the same year or just before her death on October 8th, 1963. She died of a heart attack, correct? In her 50s? Yes. Was there any sense that she was ill before that? Or was it just kind of a surprise to everyone who knew her? Well, it was a surprise to everyone. Even uh, Leonora Carrington said in an interview that she could not believe that because she was with her a few hours before and she was perfectly fine. Mm. Well, it's such a loss and yet she has left such an incredible legacy. She was so prolific and has created, I mean, sincerely, some of my favorite works of art and so many of them. How did you come to fall in love with Remedios yourself and devote so much of your own scholarship to her work? 
Well, I first discovered her work when I was studying art history. And I started questioning from the very beginning, where are the women? You know, where are the women? Like in every period, historical period. And of course, getting to modern times, you start seeing more and more women. And I decided that I wanted to do my dissertation on the collection of women artists at the Modern Art Museum here in Mexico. Mm. And that's how I got to know her work really well. And the museum had just received a donation of 39 works by her. Mm. They were in litigation. Her niece trying to claim that they belonged to her because they were in the hands of uh, Walter Gruen, her last partner. Mm -hmm. So when I was hired as a curator at the Modern Art Museum, my first job was to search all the provenance because all those paintings had been sold to other people. And then Walter, when Remedios died, he organized a big exhibition the following year and he knew everyone, you know, he knew all the collectors of her work and he told every one of them that if you ever have to let go of one of her works, please sell it to me because I want to build a collection that will end up in a museum. So she will be remembered. So that's how I started getting much more involved into her. I was at the Gruen's house almost every single day and I was researching Mm -hmm. and visiting collectors and people. And I just was fascinated by her work. Can we just take a pause too to give another shout out to Walter Gruen? If it wasn't for him, I mean, first of all, he supported her financially so she could do so much of her work, I understand. And then for him to continue to be such a champion of her legacy well after her passing is, is quite heroic. I don't know what he was like personally, but I'm so grateful to him for protecting her work in such an amazing fashion. He was an amazing man. He had such an integrity and he was also very sweet and kind, but very energetic when he had to defend something. He <laughs> was never, ever interested in money. He never charged anybody to reproduce images. To For him, the more, the better. You know, he just wanted Remedios to be out in the world. He even supported financially many projects. You know, he did the catalog resume. So he and his wife, his second wife was Remedios' friend as well. You know, mm. she was much younger. He was an entrepreneur and he had uh, the first classical record store in Mexico. That's so how he awesome. was able to finance, you know, her work. And Alexandra was a young German opera singer that arrived to Mexico looking for a job. So she ended up working there and she became friends with the two. And after Remedios died, then they got married. And she decided that she was going to help him with this mission. And so together... They created the collection. They gave it together to the museum. She collaborated with him in the catalog. So it was a a joint project. Uh, We should all be so lucky to have such friends who love us and who believe in our work. I'm so touched by that story. So right now we're in this moment where, 
you know, MoMA here in New York City has acquired her masterpiece, The Juggler, which is now on view, and everybody should go and check it out. It's such an incredible painting. There's, of course, this Surrealism Beyond Borders show. The New York Times recently wrote an article about her called Overlooked No More, Remedios Varo, Spanish Painter of Magic, Mysticism, and Science, on and on. I imagine that must feel very gratifying for you. But I'm also wondering, what else is next? I'm insatiable. I want more Remedios (laughs) Varo. Is there anything that you can share in terms of other places we might be able to see her work or learn more about her coming up? Well, there's an upcoming exhibition, um, but it's a group show. It's not curated by me, but it's called Surrealism and Magic, that it's going to take place at the Guggenheim Museum in Venice that will open at the same time as the Venice Biennale. So some Uh of the works will be there. Then at the Venice Biennale, that it's also named after Leonora Carrington short story, The Milk of Dreams. There's yes. going to be a, a huge exhibition of women artists and the anchor will be the surrealist. So there will be a few paintings by Remedios, by Leonora, by the other surrealists, and then a lot of contemporary artists that have been influenced by their legacy. And there will be, I cannot say where yet, Ooh. but there will be a Barrow solo show in the U.S. for 2023. Ah, Teddy! And I'm buying my plane ticket right now. I'm just going to buy a ticket to every state. We'll see where <laughs> it ends up being. Amazing. And we're looking at the possibility of reprinting the five keys in English, hopefully next year. You must It is such a treasure, Tede. I feel so lucky that I have a copy. It is really a masterful book. This is your book about Remedios Varo, and you have some other writers, including Janet Kaplan, who wrote the book that made me fall in love with Remedios even further called Unexpected Journeys. I really hope you republish this book, Tede. It's so important and so beautiful. Uh, Yes, I'm working on it. And there will be, but only three works by Remedios that will be in dialogue uh, within a retrospective of Leonora Carrington that I'm co-curating for the Arken Museum in Copenhagen and the Mafre Foundation in Madrid that will open on September next year. Okay, in 2022. But that's basically Leonora with a dialogue with Remedios in just one room. Mm. How spectacular. So you are a busy, busy woman yourself. What do you think Remedios would make of all of this, of this resurgence of not only her work, but also this generalized interest in feminine magic that seems to be happening across a lot of different industries, a lot of different fields, but certainly that's happening in the art world right now. I think she will be thrilled. You know, I know for sure that she was aware that her message had to be out there. Otherwise, she wouldn't have cared to have Walter sign that specific contract saying, please take care of my legacy, that my work is known, it's out there. So she knew maybe at the time people were not ready to get all the message as they are now. Mm. Even a few years ago, 
it was not easy to put up a show like Five Kids in, in other countries. In Mexico, it was quite receptive, but, uh, you know, other museums in Europe or the U.S. will not really take serious an exhibition related to magic and the occult. Mm-hmm. You know, that's very, very rare. Now it's it's the fashion, no? It's becoming quite fashionable and it's much more open. I think the uh, Hilma exhibition at the Guggenheim was quite important in terms oh, of... yeah, the Hilma off Clint show. Yes. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Well, I am just so over the moon that I got to spend a little bit of time with you and a little bit of time with Remedios through you. Tede, I know people are going to want to learn more about you, your writing, your shows. Where is the best place that people can find more about you and your work? Well, I'm I'm working on updating <laughs> this <laughs> social media. I, I'll let you know we're working on that for January and I'll be able to share more about publications and exhibitions and all of that. Wonderful. And you do have a website? I do. Uh, yes, it's tedearc.com. Ah, easy peasy. Well, Tede, I am just so grateful to you. I'm grateful to you not only for taking the time with me today, but for all of the incredible work that you've done to preserve Remedios's legacy. She is just such an unbelievably moving, transformative, magical genius. She has made my life better, and you have made my life better by allowing me to learn more about her. So, Tede, thank you so, so, so much from the bottom of my heart. No, thank you. It's always a pleasure. That's it for the show. Thank you again to Tede Ark for bringing Remedios Varro into the room and into so many other rooms beyond. Do you have questions, feedback, need some witchly advice, or just want to share something magical that happened to you recently? Drop us an email at witchwavepodcast at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you, and you just might make it on the Witch Wire. The Witch Wave is a phantasmophile production written and produced by me, Pam Grossman. This episode was recorded and edited by Josh Wilcox and myself. Our theme music is the song Hand and I by Lycanthia. Special thanks go to Matt Freeman, Laura Antal, and Cece Pascal. You can check out information about this and other episodes on our website and now by Witchwave merch at witchwavepodcast.com. Please subscribe to us on your favorite podcast app and give us lots of sparkly stars. It really, truly makes a difference and helps other people find the show. You can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at WitchWavePod. And you can check out my witch emoji for iPhone by going to witchemoji.com or downloading it in the App Store. Please consider ordering my book, Witchcraft, or picking up my book, Waking the Witch, which is available everywhere now. And if you want more Witchwave or you would just like to support the show, please join us over on Patreon. That's patreon.com slash witchwave. Thank you so much for listening. Witches are the future. I'll catch you next time on The Witchwave.